It's that time once again for the Jack Riccardi Show. And here is Jack Riccardi. And here is Christian. So mm-hmm. I, I saw this story about, uh, you know, they had the big power outage in Austin, right? Yep. And there was a um, a doctor who was about to perform um, a vasectomy. Oh, <laughs> stop, stop, stop. And, and the power went out. Oh, God. And the guy did not want, the patient did not want to reschedule, you know, I guess when you psych yourself up or well, something like that, right? You, you want to go through with it. Jack, can you blame him? So the doctor said, all right, I know what to do. He ran an extension cord from his electric car into the <laughs> clinic and used electric car power to uh, perform the vasectomy. That is the most, that is without a doubt the most woke thing I think I have ever heard. Electric car power and preventing more children from being born at the same time, one helping the other, right? Total win for the sustainable environment. It's very, I don't know though. I, I, I know people think I'm against electric cars and I'm not. I'm not sure this would be a good ad for electric cars. You know, like this would make a good marketing ploy. Yeah, this is, um, I like how you tied that together. I, I don't know that I would have done that because I would have, see, as far as the vasectomy, I'd have stopped also. But then, yeah, this is very convoluted. I See, my, I, like you said, I don't think anybody has a problem with cleaner air, a better environment. I do think people have a problem with stories like you just talked about. At what cost? And mm. how, how how quickly is that happening? And is that... Is that dangerous to body yeah. parts? Yeah, yeah. We are going to talk about all of those things and and many many more here on our dreadful little show today for uh, for Wednesday. Today is the first day of the week that I've actually been sure what day it is. You know, it's like one of those when you have those three day weekends. It's always a little confusing, but it's definitely Wednesday. We've got our arms around that now. Um, we have played on this show uh, many times in the past. Um, the Democratic candidate for u.s senate in pennsylvania john fetterman and you know the story right so he's the lieutenant governor of pennsylvania he won the democratic nomination uh to be the senate candidate it's an open seat and uh, dr oz is the republican nominee and around the time that fetterman was getting the nomination he had a massive stroke he's not a he's a he's a relatively young man he's around my age but he had a massive stroke he went uh, total darkness, radio silence, basement campaign for a while. And when he came back from the campaign, from the basement and started making campaign appearances, um, he sounded like, well, for example, here's one from over Labor Day, cut number five. Listen to this. Please understand the stakes in this race. Send me to Washington, D.C. to send so I can work with Senator Casey and I can champion the union way of life in Jersey, in, excuse me, in D.C. Thank you, thank you very much, and it's an honor. I live eight minutes away from here, and when I leave tonight, I got three miles away, Dr. Oz in his mansion in New Jersey. You've got a friend, and you have an ally. Send me to Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steelworkers. All right, so... You know, it, it's clear that he is impaired in his speaking by this stroke. And it is legitimate to wonder about his fitness 
for office given his illness. But he is running for the Senate. He's not running for president. He's not going to be in the Situation Room. He's not running for governor where he's going to have to make split-second decisions and manage and lead his state through, a, through a, 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 say, a, a natural emergency. Senators vote yes or no. If John Fetterman can find the yes or no buttons, he can do this job. So there's a lot of stuff to dislike about John Fetterman. I mean, he's a, he's a socialist. He pretends to be a regular guy. He's never had a real job. He's got weird and muddled positions on things like voter ID or American energy. But the Republicans have decided to run against him and mock him for the way he talks. That's what they're doing in Pennsylvania. In this seat that could, that could determine the makeup of the Senate, which party controls the Senate, the, the geniuses in the Republican Party have decided, let's mock his speech impediment from the stroke. Really. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not defending him. I don't want him in the Senate. But most people don't speak well, and most people are afraid to speak publicly. And they say that people are more afraid of speaking publicly than of dying, and I don't know if that's true, but I could believe for some of you it probably is true. Highlighting his speaking problems is going to get him sympathy. It's not going to get Dr. Oz elected. And it's just incredible to me that this is the avenue they've chosen. You know, I get that everybody's expecting a red wave, but I've said it before, I'll say it again. The Republicans better figure out what the reason is for voting for them. Because if they go into this thinking, well, we're going to benefit from how furious people are and how disappointed and Biden is a disaster, this isn't going to go well for them. What's the reason for? And making fun of the way a guy talks is not the way to do it. 210-599-5555. More leaks from the Department of Justice on what the secret documents were at Mar-a-Lago. The Washington Post in what seems clearly to be a leak directly from Merrick Garland's DOJ says that among the documents were um, revelations about and um, secrets about our and other countries' nuclear capabilities. Trump had paper on our and other countries' nuclear capabilities. Now, it's a separate issue that the Justice Department is leaking these stories. And we can talk about that, and we have talked about that. But I noticed that the the left-wing media are running with this story in an interesting way. They're saying, well, Trump shouldn't be privy to this kind of thing and it's 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 horrible that he would have these uh this information or or we can't trust a guy like trump with this kind of stuff it's like they don't know that he was president so whether or not he had them at mar-a-lago whether or not he was supposed to have them at mar-a-lago these secrets were right in front of donald trump for four years he might have looked at these documents at the White House or in the Situation Room or in a cabinet meeting or in an intelligence briefing. But they act like we can't let him around this sort of thing. 
Yeah, well, we did. We already did that. The other thing I heard today, a few different places, so the, the memo has gone out. The new talking point is Trump had the docks at Mar-a-Lago because he was going to sell them. He was going to make money. He was going to see who would buy, who would be the high bidder. He was going to, like, you know, have like a, like an eBay auction. Who would buy these sensitive nuclear documents? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Trump was a very rich guy before he became president. So he came into the presidency rich and he left rich. He claims he lost money and he didn't take a salary while he served. I don't know. But I contrast that with so many politicians we see. And by the way, Republicans and Democrats, House, Senate, you name it, they come into office, they have very modest means, right? And they tell you that. I'm just a regular guy. Look at me. I'm running for office. I'm driving around in a 12-year-old pickup. Then they leave office, and they're multimillionaires. And you don't have to be a math whiz to know they didn't get that way by, you know, being frugal with their Senate salary or their congressional salary. It's not that much. Well, they wrote a book. Yeah, but the books suck. None of none of them are, are, are bestsellers. Well, they give some speeches. So bottom line is we have no curiosity about how fairly middle-of-the-road, economically speaking, people are becoming millionaires supposedly doing public service. We have no curiosity about that. The liberal media can't be bothered. But Trump is trying to sell documents. Look, I don't know what he was up to. And he's done some sketchy things. I'll give you that. But it's incredible, the soda straw, that they look through just at this guy. And I'll say it, I've said this many times, I'd be happy if they covered every politician, every candidate for office, everyone in office. If they covered every one of them the way they covered Trump, I'd be as happy as a pig and you know what. Because then we'd really get to the bottom of a lot of things. But they only want to do it for this guy. Elizabeth Warren has a great idea, said no one ever. (laughs) She says that uh, we could stop mass shootings in this country with credit card companies. She's challenging on Twitter, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, etc. She says, you guys can and should do more to help stop mass shootings. Step up and identify suspicious purchases to prevent gun violence. And she's written a letter uh, to the uh, various companies, like American Express. She wants them to flag suspicious purchases. First of all, they do flag sus- suspicious purchases in the interest of protecting their customers. I've had that experience, maybe you have had too, where they will contact you and say, is this you? But what does she mean by suspicious purchases of guns? I mean, to Elizabeth Warren, every purchase of a gun is suspicious. It's always questionable. It's always disturbing. How would you differentiate? How? Most mass shooters don't buy 25 guns. Even the ones that have a lot on hand, they usually didn't buy them all at once, so there wouldn't have been a suspicious purchase, so to speak. But who do we trust 
to decide what is a suspicious purchase. Who would be the, the arbiter of that? I don't know if you get any two people to agree on that at all, let alone a, a standard that most people would accept. So we'll talk about that. Jack here for Wednesday late afternoon. We're talking about, uh, isn't it a good campaign strategy for the Republicans in Pennsylvania to mock the impaired speech of their opponent? I don't think it is. I really don't. I mean, I, I want to defeat Fetterman, but I, I think people will sympathize with the guy, not say, oh, I'm going to vote against him. He had a stroke. He can't talk very well. That's, that's not going to work. I mean, look at the people we have in office now. Have you noticed some of the octogenarian and septuagenarian members of Congress we have now? If people were seriously interested in mental clarity and clear speaking, you'd have to clean out the Senate and the House. That's not what's gonna, that's not what's gonna get it done. That's not gonna make Mehmet Oz more likable to Pennsylvania voters. I, I just, it's so stupid. Leave it to the Republicans in a red wave year to blow that race. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, we're talking about uh, whether or not Trump was, uh, holding documents at Mar-a-Lago so he could sell them. Just picture him like, you know, <laughs> on eBay. Uh, and then this city in the Netherlands uh, is going to ban uh, meat. They've just voted to ban the public advertisement for meat and meat products. And they, what they're saying is, we're not about, we're not, we're not interested in what people do in their own homes. Uh, we can't force them not to eat it, but we can stop the promotion of it. And that's actually pretty striking in the Netherlands, because I don't know if you know this or not, but the Netherlands, despite being a very small country, is an incredibly uh, high agricultural producer. It's one of the world's top ten most productive countries for agriculture. Um, It has a very proud tradition of farming both crops and livestock, uh, where they, they get a lot out of a very small amount of land. They make the land work well. They produce high quality. Um, and that's why you've seen uh, the farmers there protesting these policies of uh, don't use nitrogen fertilizer and don't raise cows because they emit methane and all this other baloney, all this other junk science. They, they're furious because they've been feeding their people and feeding much of Europe for hundreds of years. And now all of a sudden politicians are telling farmers, multi-generational farmers, we know better than you. And, and they're essentially driving people off their land because if you, if you keep going forward incrementally with this green energy revolution, you will eventually raise the opportunity cost for farmers and especially family farms, they'll have to give up. They'll have to give in. And then who gets that land? And what do they do with it? Probably the government. And they probably don't feed Europe. I mean, I don't know if you remember these ads that used to run for the National, was it the National Beef Council or Beef Producers? These, these were not ads for a supermarket or a brand. These were ads for the product itself. You may remember ones like this one here. Words out. The taste of love is also a good source of things you need, like iron, zinc, protein, and some B vitamins. Beef. It's what's for dinner tonight. Mm, can't, can't have that anymore. 
It, it's 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 ruining the world. It's it's ending the globe. It's 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 killing off the human population. It's it's bringing about our demise. It's not what's for dinner. Now we're we're getting this from people that have never grown anything but maybe a a, a you know a jar of basil on their windowsill. We're getting this from people who claim to care about the world, like the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and the IMF and the WTO. You know, when I was a kid, and I remember this really vividly, I was in elementary school, very young. We took home from school one day these cardboard boxes, and they were orange with blue print on them, and they had the seal or the logo, I should say, of the United Nations. And it was to feed the hungry. And I came home from school, and I, you had to fold together this box. It folded into, it was like a sheet that folded into a box, put the tabs in. I put all my coins in. My, my uh, allowance was coins. It's a long time ago. And then I actually went into the neighborhood. I never did anything like this as a kid. I was extremely shy. But I went to the door-to-door and collected money to feed the hungry through the United Nations. So I remember, and maybe you do too, a time when our biggest worry was, will we produce enough food? Can we make enough food? People are starving, and it, it, it gnawed at us. It bothered us. We couldn't enjoy our, our wealth and our well-being in this country knowing that people were starving on the continent of Africa. And so a little boy went out, overcame his shyness, and collected nickels and quarters from his neighbors. Now, we've gone from that that altruism, that concern to make sure that a human being's most essential need is met. We've gone from that to intentionally taking farmland offline, to intentionally intimidating or forcing farmers off their land. We're telling them not to grow the crops. We're telling them not to raise the livestock. We finally figured out how to do it. We finally got to the point where we can produce enough food for this world of ours. Remember when they said we'd all starve to death, the population time bomb. But we, we, we overcame that. Yes, there are still hungry people in the world today, but it's not because we don't grow enough food. It's because we don't get it to the people who need it. And now here comes these do-gooders telling people that have been farming for generations brilliantly, innovatively, with a lot of pride, and they aren't political people. These guys in the Netherlands, I saw interviews with them. They're, they're not political people. They just want, they want to be left alone. If you just leave them alone, they'll grow their crops and raise their animals and they, they're not asking for anything else. And they've been doing it. And these morons are going to tell them they know better. And what happened to our concern about enough food for the poor? Well, screw that. We've got to clean up the air. <laughs> I mean, are, are you okay with this? Are people going to be okay with this? Is, this? is this the moment where people go, no, uh, uh, no more. That's it. You've had, your, you've had your say. We've heard you out. No. What you're proposing is not a revolution. What you're proposing is not progress. It sounds like deprivation. It sounds like dystopia. This doesn't sound like a future we'd want to live in. It sounds like a future we would never want to live in. It sounds like a future to be averted. And everything they're pushing down our throats right now is because you can't sell it to people any other way. You can't get people to voluntarily do this stuff, so you've got to do it with force. 
you can't reason people into their own starvation. You can't give them a choice. They won't choose that. What do you think? We're living in interesting times. Um, We have finally gotten to the point that many said we would never reach where we can feed the world. But we're now choosing not to. We're now deciding that agriculture, farmers, are the enemy. They're killing the planet. They're they're they're, they're gonna they're gonna bring this planet to a, a an early, untimely death. I remember when Hollywood types they idolized farmers, at least they pretended to. Remember Farm Aid? They wrote songs about farmers. They might never have met one, but they paid tribute to them. They, they, they admired them or they said they did. We're not pretending anymore. Farmers are the enemy. They must be driven from the land they're farming. They must slaughter their animals once and for all, never to feed anyone, but just to, to stop that. Because those aren't feeding us. Those are methane-producing death machines. And crops? Are you kidding me? Eat some crickets. We need that land for solar panel farms. Or God knows what else. The Chinese want that farm. We need to sell it to them. I mean, it's insane. And, of course, when the you-know-what hits the fan, and we have starving people, these do-gooders will be nowhere to be found. Or they'll, they'll blame someone else for that. They won't say, well, this is on us. We wrecked agriculture and we didn't think through how to feed Africa. No. All in the pursuit of environmental goals that the, the scientists increasingly are saying we can't reach and probably don't need to try to reach, like zero net zero emissions by 2040 or whatever it is. You know, the other thing that scares me about all this is this is central planning. So farming is decentralized. But this is central planning. This is multinational organizations trying to uh, govern the world. And if there's one thing the 20th century taught us, it's that central planning does not work it fails, and one of the ways it fails is it always leads to scarcity. Whatever central planners control, we never have enough of, whether it's food or toilet paper or you name it. That was the experience in the Soviet Union. That was the experience in Mao's China. That's been the experience in socialist countries more recently. Central planning is a disaster, and that's what we're going to do to the world. Who do you believe? Do you believe some wet-behind-the-ears global bureaucrat? Or do you believe somebody who's the X generation of his family or her family to work that land? 210-599-5555. Lazarus is on KTSA. Lazarus, good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. So did you have a thought about this or a comment on this? Oh, yes. Sorry, I didn't know where I was at. Uh, yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller. I did have thoughts about the, uh, you know, link with the power grid and what they're doing with farmers. Um, to me, it seems more like 
they're trying to whittle down your energy, you know, sources of where you get food, you know, energy, like a body, mm-hmm. human body. Mm-hmm. So if you decline these, if you lower them down, then you can control the population. Mm-hmm. Once you control the population, you can kind of do what you want with them. I mean, you've seen that in communist yeah. areas as well. So mm-hmm. my belief is that it's kind of linked into twine that they're doing this just to get their way of how to control uh, populations. And if you control their food, that's the main thing. In any type of simulation you you do, you're gonna if you control the food, you control what you can have other people do. So yeah, if you can centrally is, plan something, you can control the quantity of it, the quality of it, the availability of it. You can control who gets it or who gets first dibs on it. As you said, you can limit it and then create a crisis where people will depend on government more because that's the first thing we do, right? When we run out of something yep. like the baby formula thing, everybody immediately turned to the government and said, "What are you going to do for us?" So um, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't I don't see any other way to look at this, and I'm not about to distrust people that have worked the land their whole lives and their parents and grandparents before them. I'm not going to suddenly turn on them and say they're my enemy. Oh yeah, the people that don't bite the people uh, feed, uh, that feed you, right? Don't bite the hand. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Very well said. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you're right. Thank you, Lazarus. Good call. Um, good first time call. Steve is on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSa. Steve, good afternoon. Jack, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. During your opening monologue, you said in relation to this, you said there was something very frightening going on with the farmers and the food, and that is what prompted my call because. A couple of weeks back, you asked, "What is what is? Why are we motivated? What is motivating motivating us to go to the polls and vote? Was it to get rid of Biden, to vote against the Democrats, to vote for Trump? Or mm-hmm. for me, what is motivating me more than ever is 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 the the, the desire to to save our republic. Now, I don't know what the power elite here in this country and across the world." What, what they have in store for us, I think they know what they want to do with us or to us. They just don't know quite how to get there because in this country we're armed and, and we're free people. But I have, a, I have a feeling that the silence of the Republicans during all of the Democrat words that they're saying and, and, and lies and, and mm-hmm. fear that they're mongering, the silence of the Republicans indicates to me that both of these parties, the power elite, if you will, they have very, very nefarious plans mm. for this country and the people in this country. I don't know quite what they are, but yeah, but yeah. I believe them to be very nefarious plans. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, I, I am worried about our republic, but I'm also worried about something even kind of more general, which is... Um, the, the the way you feed people, okay, is you trust people who know how to feed people to feed people. The way you don't feed people, if you want to fail at it, you turn to people that have never done it and ask them, what should we do? Okay? If you wanted to get to Los Angeles tonight, you would go to a company that flies airplanes and operates them and services them. You would buy a ticket from them. You would get into your seat. You would trust that they are going to fly the plane to Los Angeles. They're not going to miss. They're not going to land in the ocean. They're not going to take you to another city. You know you'll get there. You don't think twice about it because this is what they're good at. This is what they do. Farmers feed the world. This is what they do. 
Uh, in the Netherlands, they are renowned for being innovative, for trying new things, for being more efficient with water and fertilizer and, and soil. They have to be. It's a tiny country. To go after those people and to brazenly try to drive them out of their own land is way beyond the normal red versus blue stuff. This is serious dystopian stuff. As far as the Republicans, I don't think half the time the Republicans really get how serious some of this stuff is. They know that they know they're supposed to be on the other side of it, but I don't know if there's many leaders in the Republican Party who think as big as some on the left think. So so there's people on the left thinking big thoughts, thinking, you know, they even have a name for this thing I'm telling you. It's called the Great Food Transformation. Sounds good, right? Sounds sounds delicious. But the great food transformation is, as Lazarus pointed out, a plan to more centrally control a finite supply. You couldn't do it if you left the farmers alone. If you squeezed them over here, they'd produce more over there, right? That's what happens now. There's a drought in one place, they grow more somewhere else. If you can't buy it here, you buy it over there. But if you can get a if you can get a central plan, and you can you can demonize the actual practice of agriculture, now you're onto something. Well, that's that's big stuff. That's big, you know, like Blofeld and Bond kind of thinking. I don't know if the Republicans have or the right has people that think that way, and can and and can counter that. I hope they do. I hope I'm just missing who that is. 210-599-5555. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. And, you know, here in this country, we're seeing the folly of California. We've talked about it, right? So California says uh, we're, we're going to electric vehicles by 2035. And now almost every night, according to my friends in California, they're getting notices from the state or from the uh, utilities uh, saying, hey, everybody, please don't use large appliances in the evening. Are electric cars large appliances? That's when people charge them. You know, you're driving them during the day. You're charging them in the evening. And they're saying, in fact, one of the things they're asking is, please don't charge your electric car in the evening. So it isn't about getting people into electric cars. It just seems to be. I think it might actually be getting people out of cars and controlling movement and location and we'll we'll take you where you need to go when we think you need to go there, right? And so all of this is, if you want to take this on, you have to break out of the red versus blue, you know, donkey versus elephant. This is bigger than that now. That was your that was your dad's political world. This is different now. Remember Kathy Griffin, the comedian. Well, I mean, she she was kind of funny at one time. She's not as funny as she used to be. She's the one that held up the severed Trump head and all that. Well, anyway, she's she's back um, on Twitter. Uh, and this was her hot take uh, last night. If you don't want a civil war, and by the way, for the record, I don't want a civil war. Are you with me on that? I don't want a civil war. If you don't want a civil war, vote for Democrats in November. If you do want civil war... Vote Republican. That's what she said. What do you think that means? 
Let's assume for the moment that maybe Kathy Griffin doesn't even exactly know what it means. Maybe she heard it somewhere. Maybe it sounded good to her. She was up one night streaming MSNBC, and oh, man, that just clicked. What does that mean? Does that mean the Democrats will start a civil war if they lose? So if we don't want a civil war, we need to do what you're telling us to do. That that feels a little like um, a hostage situation, you know? Give me what I want, nobody gets hurt. You like this little country of yours? Better do what I say. Because the civil war of our experience, and in fact in most countries, civil wars are the worst wars. They wreak the greatest destruction of people and things and places. They're almost impossible to resolve. You can stop the fighting, but the the resentment and the emotions aren't so easily switched off. Other wars between countries, comparatively speaking, can end kind of cleanly. You can have like the unconditional surrender, the total defeat. Civil wars aren't like that. So we don't want a civil war. What does it mean to say, if you don't want a civil war, vote for Democrats in November. If you do want civil war, vote Republican. And you know what's interesting about people like Kathy Griffin, or the side she wants to be on, is they always say they're against war, right? But they're always the one waging war. War on farmers. War on people of faith. You know, it's everything to them is is a war. Life isn't living. And the people I know who consider themselves conservative generally just want to live and let live. I mean, if they have to, they'll fight. I'm not saying they won't or they don't, but they're not looking for it. They they want to be left alone, like the farmers in the Netherlands. Just leave us alone. Just let us do what we do. We don't ask anything else. The, the left is always, no, there's got to be a war. And even war itself. I mean, Trump was the one president that didn't get us into a war. It seems like, I'm not, I'm not saying it has to be this way, but it seems like just about everybody else either got us into one or was spoiling for one. Do these people even hear themselves? 210-599-5555. Thomas is calling in about the uh, farmers, the war on farmers on KTSA. Thomas, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Um, I agree with most of what you said. Um, usually that's the case. I guess just my concern is what do we do if we're getting to the point where our consumption of beef is creating part of the problem, right? So what the amount that we eat of beef compared to, like, my grandparents is a lot more, which is increasing the demand. And then you do have issues where you have these major corporate farming uh, that doesn't really take the consideration that the farmers that you're talking about do. So I guess I've always been kind of in that situation, well, there's gonna, there is a problem. How do we solve it without going to the central planning 
And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that aspect of it. I Well, it's hard for me to say I have like three seconds left, but I, I don't oh, know sorry. that there is a problem. I don't know that... I don't know that I accept your premise that if we're eating more meat now than we used to, that is somehow going to doom us. Um, I am more—I have more faith in in the marketplace. I have more faith in people who've made their lives doing this than I do in in central planners or in people who go around declaring emergencies. We're, we live in a time, Thomas, when people. Uh, can can declare these emergencies out of thin air, and then we all have to do whatever it is they say to do. Um, but I, I don't trust them. I think we've just been through an experience that indicates we shouldn't. So I, I'm sorry that's not a great answer or a total answer to your to your question. But I don't I don't accept that we have the emergency that would require something like the World Economic Forum to drive farmers off their land. We're asking people on the uh, poll question today about this. Uh, I think it was your story, in fact, the WWE event. Coming to San Antonio. Yeah, Royal um, Rumble. Are you a fan of... Yeah, are you a WWE guy? You know, truth be told, you know, growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth many, many moons ago, I was really big into the Von Erich family, if you recall. And so you know, I like seeing guys like Undertaker, who actually got his start in Dallas. Most people don't know that. So I guess I'm saying no, but <laughs> but yes, I am. So... You sound like you know a lot about it. Yeah. That, that sounded like a yes to me, or at least a, little, a former yes. It was getting a little oh, okay. deep, though. So, yeah, it, it's fun sometimes. All right, that's what we're asking today. Are you a WWE fan? We'll put you down as a yes. Uh, you can vote in the JR poll at KTSA.com when you call into the show, 210-599-5555. I feel bad we kind of rushed Thomas off the air, but I was at the end of the hour. I I, I gathered from Thomas's call that... He basically, he said, look, I'm not for central planning. I don't want a war on meat. But he said, what about the concerns that there may be some bad practices or, um, I, I, that's, a, that's a legitimate concern. That isn't a reason to turn to central planners or to start eating crickets. But I would just remind people that are maybe having some mixed feelings about this whole topic. Remember the, the track record, the, Players here that we're talking about, the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF, these are also the same suspects, okay? These institutions and these players have a terrible record of degrading the environment by promoting large-scale corporate farming, basically at the expense of independence and family farms okay they've they've done this for years they've used their authoritarian power they've used the power of multinational corporations to favor corporate farming over individual farming so those guys you saw protesting in the netherlands driving their tractors in a in a picket line those are those are independents those are family farms those are those are little guy and from everything I've read, they're incredibly responsible, organic as much as possible. They're, they're careful with the land. They're careful with the water. They have to be. And they're up against huge corporatist, uh, you know, concerns that probably do have some bad practices. That's probably the stuff that, that is making Thomas uncomfortable. 
So why should we listen to the people who gave us that kind of farming and now are trying to say, well, all farming is that way? Don't listen to them. I don't, I don't want to pick on her. I really don't. But it was about time somebody pointed out to Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, that if she's going to come out every day and uh, talk about the Republicans or the MAGA people being election deniers, she's been one herself. And it was Peter Ducey who took her to task yesterday at the briefing. Listen to this, cut number three. The new attention on the MAGA Republicans. You tweeted in 2016 Trump stole an election. I was waiting, Peter, when you were going to ask me that question. Well, here we go. You tweeted Trump stole an election. You tweeted Brian Kemp stole an election. If denying election results is extreme now, why was it So let's let's be really clear. That that comparison that you made is just ridiculous. I have been I have been well, you're asking me you're asking me a question. Let me answer it. And you said it was ridiculous. I was I was talking specifically at that time of what was happening with voting rights and the what was in danger of voting rights. That's what I was speaking to at the time. Uh, here's one of her tweets uh, from 2016. Stolen emails, stolen drone, stolen election. Seems pretty sweeping. It was a stolen election. She's not concerned about voting rights. In fact, that that term isn't even in this tweet. The whole thing about election denial has become ridiculous, okay? You are going to have people after every election who are concerned with or, or angry about things that were done or votes that were counted or votes that weren't counted in that last election. In fact, the the co-chairman of the January 6th committee, a guy named Benny Thompson, voted against certifying the 2004 election, which was Bush over Kerry. Uh, There's a history here. And Corinne Jean-Pierre, who was a, you know, activist mouthpiece before she went to work for the Biden White House, has a record. Uh, and Ducey persisted, and she kept trying to say it, it's not the same and it doesn't matter. Cut number four. A follow-up about the MAGA Republican attention. So if we're all in agreement that it is incorrect to say the 2020 election was stolen, what about the 2016 election? Look, I'm not going to go back to where we were or what happened in 2016. We're going to focus on the here and now. We're going to focus on what's happening today, uh, this inflection point that the president pointed out uh, very clearly, very decisively uh, in, in a few speeches about what the country needs to do at this time to bring the country together. And he believes that's where majority of Americans are when it comes to protecting our democracy, when it comes to protecting our rights, and when it comes to protecting our freedoms. That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to focus on, on where we are today. Okay, so I don't necessarily like this politician whose clip I'm about to play. I don't trust her. I will tell you that I still think she may be a wolf in sheep's clothing. But Carrie Lake is the Republican candidate for governor in Arizona. She was a television anchor woman. She was a self-avowed Obama Democrat. 
she's transformed into a MAGA Republican, and a lot of people believe she really is one, so she's getting a lot of support. I don't know. She was asked a question about uh, Biden. Uh, she has said that uh, President Biden is dividing the country. And the, the question from the reporter is, well, didn't Trump do that by claiming that the 2020 election was stolen? Listen to Carrie Lake's response to that. Cut number two. Questioning an election where there are obviously problems is, is dividing the country. Since when can we not ask questions about our elections? As a journalist for many years, I was a journalist after 2016, and I distinctly remember many people just like you asking a lot of questions about the 2016 election results. And nobody tried to shut you up. Nobody tried to tell Hillary Clinton to shut up. Nobody tried to tell Kamala Harris when she was questioning the legitimacy of these electronic voting machines to stop. We're, we have freedom of speech in this country, and you of all people should appreciate that. You're supposedly a journalist. You should appreciate that. So I don't see how asking questions about an election where there are many problems is dividing a country. What I do see dividing a country is shutting people down, censoring people, canceling people, trying to destroy people's lives when they do ask questions. Last I heard, we still have the Constitution. It's hanging by a thread, thanks to some of the work some people in this area have done. But we're going to save that Constitution, and we're going to bring back freedom of speech. And maybe someday you'll thank us for that. That is, I have to admit, that is a textbook perfect answer to that question. But this is a very destructive, stupid way to do politics. To refer to people who are skeptical about voting and procedures and vote counting as election deniers. In fact, I was disappointed to see the 538 guy, uh, Nate Silver, who I think does a lot of good work. I don't always agree with him, but I think he does a lot of good analysis work. He did a map on his website uh, showing where around the country there are what he calls election deniers on the ballot. And it's one of those color-coded maps. It reminds me a lot of the kind of COVID demonization. Here's where the COVID is. Here's where the COVID deniers are. And, you know, we have election deniers. We had COVID deniers. It all came from Holocaust deniers. That's nice company to put people in when you yourself in elections that didn't go your way, not only questioned them, but called Trump an illegitimate president, called GWB an illegitimate uh, president. Um, so it's now it's not skepticism or standing up to the man or don't trust anybody over 30. Now it's you're an election denier. And look, they brought this on themselves, the Democrats. They're the ones that changed all the procedures, everything that people were familiar with, everything that was statutory in 2020. They said they had to. They said it would be one time. They said you'd thank them for it. Well, none of that's true. None of that has turned out to be true. And they're getting a lot of blowback, and people don't like it. And now they're, now they're the victims, right? They, they did it. They chose it. They got their guy across the finish line. 81 million votes! And now they don't like it. I see a pattern here, don't you? Um, here, here, this may seem like a random question, but why do people hate on Mormons so much? I mean, what, what's what's the deal with that? There was a story um, of a couple. This was somewhere in the Midwest. 
um, a lesbian couple, and they had a, a doormat, they have a doormat, that says, gayest place in town. You can get it at Target, by the way. So they thought that was kind of funny, and they put it out on their front door stoop, and they have a doorbell camera, and along come two young Mormon missionary men, and the camera recorded them. They come to the door. They're about to ring the doorbell of these two ladies. They read the doormat, and you can see their reaction. They're like, oh, no, never mind, and they just walk away. They opt not to ring the doorbell. And the takeaway of this is that they're being mocked on the Internet. People are laughing their asses off at these two Mormon missionaries for not ringing the doorbell with the gayest place in town doormat. I'm confused. I mean, they probably sized up the situation and thought this is not a likely place for us to make our pitch. Um, I, I will tell you, they come to my house a lot, and I, I, I'm, I'm never sorry to see them. I'm Catholic. I'm not about to change, but they're respectful. It's a, it's a nice encounter or conversation. They're not pushy. Uh, you give them water if it's a hot day. What, why, what is it? I, I know why people hate Catholics. I'm Catholic and I get it. What do people hate Mormons? What is this what is this all about? And I, I, I know you can't generalize about any religion and say, well, the ones I know are fine, you know, but there seems to be a particular um a particular hatred, like a special brand. And again, if these guys had rung the doorbell, then you can imagine, I'm not saying it, I know this would have happened, but you can imagine that these two would have gone on TikTok and said, oh, we're the, the, why don't they leave us alone? We're just, you know. So they didn't, they did not ring the doorbell, and that's an issue. And and somebody even wrote, um, they're not doing their job. <laughs> what? I don't know. Um, if anybody has any insight into what, what is it about, I mean, there's a Broadway show that makes fun of Mormon. What What is the deal? Is it Mitt Romney? Is it what? What is it? Because they seem like lovely people, and um, I can think of worse people to have to, you know, open your door to. And you know, you, you open you, the doorbell rings. You open your door. More often than not, it's somebody trying to sell you something, and not all of that is very reputable. And you know the story, right? They all do this obligatory missionary turn, so they put in their service. So you know that's why they're there. You know that this is not um, easy for them. They don't jump into an air-conditioned Hertz rent-a-car and drive to the next house. What's, What's the deal? The New York Times did a thing where they asked a bunch of people to write guest columns or op-ed columns answering the question, what is school for? What is school for? Because, I mean, think about it. We're having all these debates and arguments and fistfights over everything from 
Should kids physically go to school, curriculum, teaching racism, teaching American history, the new math, which is still a, a mystery to me. My daughter's a senior, so I guess I'm done with the new math, but I never did. I never did figure out how the new math was better than the old math. But anyway, so we have all these um, squabbles on the battlefield of public schools, but I thought it was interesting to step back and say, well, what are, what's the point? How would you answer that? I'm interested in your answer to that. What is school for? Now, I don't want to hear, Jack, that's a complicated thing. It's for a lot of the... What, what is the primary... If you, had to, if you had to give me a sentence with a primary purpose, we have in this country uh, a, a public education system. Not everyone's in it. People are opting out of it for a variety of uh, reasons and in a variety of ways. But what is school for? And coming up, we're going to talk to one of the authors who wrote one of the op-ed pieces in response. We're going to hear what her answer to that question was. But I want to get yours. 210-599-5555. And I'll give you mine here coming up, too. Yeah, I mean, the the Mormon story, I, I it just seems sad to me. You know, the, these two young men will be fine, I'm sure. But at the moment, they're being mocked on social media because they walked up to a doorstep. It was in Indiana. And these, this lesbian couple had a, uh, LGBTQ rainbow, uh, mat on the front door, you know, the front step. It's a gayest place in town. Okay. That's funny. Um, the, the two young men on the doorbell camera clearly see this, pull their hand away from the doorbell and decide not to go to that house, not to ring that bell. That seems respectful. The response to it seems disrespectful. Mocking them, belittling them. They're not doing their job. Isn't it their job to save you, said one woman on social media. They, they're failing their mission, said another guy. As a queer and transformer Mormon, this brings me such joy, said another commenter. What is the, what is the deal? I, I, I can't say I know a lot of Mormon people, but the ones I've known have been great people. Uh, these two did nothing overtly hostile. Seems like a lot of people don't like having their doorbell rung, so anytime somebody pulls their hand away from the doorbell, it seems like a win for the homeowner, but you tell me, 210-599-5555. We've also been talking this afternoon about this weird Republican strategy in Pennsylvania, this Senate race, to make the central issue the speech impediment of the, of the Democratic candidate who had a stroke. He clearly is impaired. They're clearly covering for him. I get that. But isn't that going to create more sympathy for him rather than a reason to vote for the Republican candidate? Like, I, to my way of thinking, you're not reading the room right. A, a person that is is challenged or is struggling um, is probably going to be empathized with rather than seen as unfit for the office. He is unfit for the office. I mean, his positions are whack. He shouldn't be within 100 yards of the U.S. Senate. But that's not the reason why. It's a dumb reason to give people. It's a dumb reason to frame the race. It, 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 maybe it'll work. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this stuff. I never ran for anything. But I've, I've seen a lot of campaigns from the front row, and it doesn't look, it doesn't look smart to me.
210-599-5555. What is school for? Asked the New York Times. And a series of people wrote essays about it. School is for economic mobility, said one. School is for wasting time, said another one. Um, and there were all these different answers. Uh, one was, uh, school is for making citizens. What do you think school is for? School is for merit, said Azra Nomani, who's going to join us in about uh, 25 minutes. 210-599-5555. Why do we send kids to school? Why do we have public schools? Why do we tax people and build this huge infrastructure? We've basically based American society on the public school system, for better or for worse, right? So what, what, what is school for? David has his answer on KTSA. We're asking everybody what their answer is, 210-599-5555. Hey, David, it's good to hear from you. How would you answer that question? Well, I don't know if I have a good answer. I have my answer. I want to hear your um, answer. I think school primarily should be set up to prepare a young person for employment in the workforce. And that would mean from a laborer all the way up to the man or the woman that runs the company. And it should allow people to be able to think for themselves so that they can have a choice for the rest of their life on how they want to live. And that's really about it. Mm -hmm. So we're preparing or we're, um, I guess, maybe prepping, preparing, setting up uh, for what you're going to encounter in in the real world as things are. Sure. We have to go to, you know, in the U.S. today, you have to stay in school until you're 16. So you have 16 years, uh, you start when you're six, so you really have about 10 years that you have to, by law, go to school. Mm-hmm. Well, that's only a small percentage of your life. So it's not an end-all or a be-all. It's just mm-hmm. a prep time yeah. For the yeah. rest of your life. Okay. That's what it should be preparing you for. Yeah. No, that's a good answer. I think that's a very good answer. A good start for us. David, thank you. Good to hear from you. Always good to hear from you. Uh, 210-599-5555. I, I can't disagree with any of that, um, but I'll give an even simpler answer, and it may sound a little too simple at first, but bear with me. School is for reading. Not that that's the only subject or that's all you do. But if you think about reading for a minute, reading is the vehicle for learning. I don't care what you learn or how you learn it, some of learning it will be reading. Even if you are learning a, a, a subject that is extremely hands-on and requires field work or getting your hands dirty, there will be stuff you have to read. And all through your life, you are going to have to learn and adapt to new technology, to new realities, to new skills. In fact, now more than ever, you know, when my grandparents went to school, the world was changing at at a snail's pace compared to the way it is now. When your parents went to school, they were preparing for a world very much like the one their parents prepared for. But today we know that kids will have not just one career or work in just one area or one company or industry. So reading and learning how to learn is what school is for. 
I feel like I've learned much more since school than I learned in school. And that's not a knock on school. That's the way life is. You know, you if you think you're done learning when they hand you the diploma, the secret is you've only just begun. Right? All right, so the New York Times asked the question, and people gave various answers. What is school for? What would be your, your single, simple, one-sentence answer to that? Patrick is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Hi, Patrick. Hi. Uh, my perspective is, is the purpose of school is to put in your kids in a position to succeed if we're talking about children. If you raise them up in the way they should go, hopefully they won't depart from it when they're older. And like you were saying, uh, reading is, is so key. You know, when you just scan an article and you come to a word that you don't know anything, you don't know what it means, you need to stop, look it up, and have an understanding of what it yeah. means, really, and then move on. Yeah. That's what school is to me. So prepare for success. Okay, very good. Patrick, thank you. Uh, 210-599-5555. How would you answer the question? It's a big question. What is school for? I mean, we should wonder. We should take stock of it, right, because it's... We spend a tremendous amount of money. Our kids spend a tremendous amount of their lives, uh, their day. Schools want them for more hours. They want year-round school, right? That's the that's the complaint from the education complex. We don't have enough with your kids. We need them more. But what's it for? What's the point? I was intrigued by the essay that said school is for making citizens. Why do we have public schools? To make young people into educated, productive adults, of course. But public schools, they write, are also for making Americans. Thus, public education requires lessons about history, the American spirit and its civics, and also contact with and context about other Americans, who we are and what has made us. Well, that's a good answer, except that, unfortunately, we don't have a broad agreement on what citizens means. Right? What... What what does being a good citizen mean? Does it mean obeying the government? Does it mean questioning things? Does it mean some combination of the two? What about kids in our schools that aren't citizens? Is our goal to educate them into becoming citizens? They may never, but they're in our schools. And who gets to decide what good citizenship is? I mean, here's the rub, right, because... If you put two people who who are politically opposite, polar opposites, in the same room with a pad of paper, are they going to be able to hammer out what that means, what making a good citizen means, what, what you should have to know, what version of events you should hear, what should be included and excluded, which books? That's why I don't get hung up on things like when they do book bans or... I, I, I'm not sympathetic, and I know there's a lot of people who are, uh, probably agree with me on things and agree with this show. I, I will tell you, when you're trying to ban a book, you don't have my support. And here's why. It is important that kids read before it is important what they read. And I would rather they read a flawed history that led them to want to know more or go deeper or say, I'm not sure if that was all on the up and up. Let me, let me, let me take another tack on this. We should want them to read as much as possible and be less concerned. I'm not saying be unconcerned, but be less concerned about what they read. 
So I'm, I'm certainly all about fighting the fights over required reading and, and curricula. But as far as whether or not it's on the shelf in the library, that's not a good fight. If your kid goes to the library, that's a blessing. Period. You know, four score and seven years ago or whatever, we, we had school, uh, we had an approach to school that I think probably could be summed up by the way, one of these writers uh, responded, it was making citizens. If you think about the, the, the history of public education in this country, it was designed to create a young man or a young woman who would be what the country needed and required and who would be equipped to prosper in this country. So you could say, well, it's to, it's to make Americans. It's, it's, it's an American manufacturing facility. But the problem we have now is the, the fungible definition of what is an American or what is a citizen. So politicians have decided, well, what do we want them to be right now? We want them to be woke about the environment. We want them to be... Uh, hyper-aware of systemic racism. We want them to be about this current threat or this current political debate. We, we've, we've basically stolen from kids the chance to just be kids. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. We've deputized children into our adult fights. Right? I mean, let's be honest, that's what we've done. Nothing to be proud of. In fact, it's horrible, but it's what we've done. Schools, therefore, become part of that fight, part of that battle, the culture war, whatever you want to call it. So the problem I have with the citizen answer is, well, who, whose definition are we going by? I'm thinking of the founding fathers, the principles on which the country was founded, a history which shows both the times we met those ideals and the times we fell short. I'm, I'm in favor of teaching both. You teach it all. You teach about America in the world which includes warts and moments we were not at our best and the moments when we soared to heights of altruism. You help kids understand why America has the place in the world that it has today, which despite our politicians' best efforts, it still has for many, many people in many, many places. But I'm not sure how you get there now, given the grubby fingers that have gotten all over this process. So the citizenship answer is the one I want to give, but I can't give it. What do you think school is for? How would you answer that question? Why do we have public schools? Why do we tax people? Why do we build these uh, this massive infrastructure? Why do we make it oblig- uh, you know, obligatory? So the New York Times asked the question, I'm asking the question, you're answering the question, what is school for? I mean, we're fighting a lot of fights. We're fighting a lot of pitched battles in this country over everything from whether or not kids go to school to what is taught, how it's taught, whose version of it is taught. Um, and for all that, you know, angst, what is the point? What do we want out of this infrastructure, this massive infrastructure that absorbs so much political debate and, and for that matter, so many tax dollars. Um, our next guest is one who answered that question, wrote one of the guest 
editorials in the New York Times. Ezra Nomani has been with us many, many times. Uh, author, journalist, uh, kind of activist uh, by necessity. She's uh, talked a lot about the fight uh, she has been fighting and is still fighting against uh, critical race theory and for merit in our schools. And Azra, it's great to have you back. You answered the question, school is for merit, which I thought was a really interesting answer. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Jack. It's so nice to talk to you and all your listeners. Uh, you didn't think that you'd be quoting from the New York Times op-ed page, did you? Yeah, that doesn't happen very often on this show. That certainly doesn't. I, I know. So this is this is a breath of fresh air. And I want every parent and activist in our new world of challenging, you know, corrupt school boards to just have hope. And with with just even the publication of this of this op-ed uh, for two years, over two years now, parents and I have been fighting in Northern Virginia for this simple idea of merit in the school system. And um, and you know the funny backstory, Jack, is that I got this assignment the Thursday before publication. Um, the editor there, very, very nice person who just managed the op-ed very professionally and with dignity, said, um, oh, you know, we've assigned these these op-eds about what school is for, and we thought to ourselves, mm, well, we don't have somebody writing that school is for merit, you know? And I thought to myself, isn't that what, isn't that the dilemma today? Like, that's the question mm. today. It's the afterthought, right? Mm-hmm. We want school to be for activism. Well, we don't want it. These activists are pushing for it to be for, you know, social justice and Black Lives Matter at school. But but we saw the same day that the the article, the op-ed was published, the education department come out with this dismal, depressing data yeah. about our nine-year-olds, right, having these very historically low reading math levels. And so what is merit? Merit just means doing our best, being excellent at what we do as as best as we can be we know we're all imperfect but we just strive and and i gave the story of my own um journey you know learning that in america's public school system yeah it's a very moving uh story you write about coming to this country with with no english um beautiful story about how you believe that the public schools you attended and the culture of meritocracy um helped you rise and and you did rise um, you write, um, we cannot afford to lose this ideal. The price would be too steep for our nation's competitive place in the world. Let me, I, I love that, but let me play devil's advocate. Yeah. Is the world still a place that values merit such that we should value it in the schools? Oh, my gosh. The world is so competitive. Look at the you know competitiveness in the school systems in most of Asia right? Um, Try to get into the MIT of India, the Indian Institute of Technology, and it is less than, you know, 0.5% possibility getting in there. Try to get into the finest um, college in China. Uh, Look at the competition to, you know, pick a profession in South Korea. Mm -hmm. It 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 is a world that is very much focused on academic excellence out there, and we're going to be left behind. And, you know, the the rest of the quote that really mattered to me to also end with, I, I learned this great tip from this um, reporter, Rochelle Sharp, to end every sentence with a positive thought. Um, it's a really neat way to flip your sentences sometimes. But what I said is that, you know, it most importantly, 
the price is too steep for our nation's kids, right? Because mm-hmm. I was a child, just like you said, I'm, I'm talking to you from Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, you know, we are a challenged state, and uh, and I had the benefit of coming to this country, <clears throat> you know, with education as our family's top priority. And so Suncrest Middle School, I was competing every year with a boy named Mike Rowe for the highest GPA, and we were neck and neck. And what I started this op-ed with was the fact that finally, senior year of high school, I got the girl with the highest, girl athlete with the highest GPA, and Mike Rowe got the boy athlete with the highest GPA. I mean, nobody cares. It's not on my LinkedIn, but it gave me that Mm self-confidence, you know? Mm -hmm. And I learned my stride, and I... um, well, everyone, go to my um, Twitter handle, and I've got the free link, the link so that you don't have to get a subscription if right. you don't want to. Right. You can read it at my link. Yeah, I made sure to get no, a subscription a, myself. Yeah. It yeah. is. A, it, it's beautifully written. There were some. There were. There were a lot of great answers, and 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 you wrote it beautifully. Um, I, I guess I wonder because I agree yeah. with you. I mean, merit is important. You say in the article, merit is contagious. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a positive kind of peer pressure for kids. But what yeah. what about how do we get the grubby fingerprints of the culture warriors off of our kids, off of our schools? Because we know what's happened. It's it's the fight you fought at Thomas Jefferson High School. It's yeah. the fight that brought you to this. The, the idea is that school is no longer sacred. It's another place to fight the culture wars, and kids are just more foot soldiers to feed onto the battleground. Yeah, exactly. One of the lines in the op-ed is merit should never have become a battlefront in the culture wars. But it is activists that are really mediocre in their own academic standards that are uh, making sacrificial lambs out of our children. And the beauty of being folks who believe in merit is that we're competitive. And so there's only one answer, and that is that we must win. And we must win with dignity and excellence and having the better argument out there. But most of all, you know, it's been a long time since you and I have talked, but we've all, we've both been in the battlefront, you know, in, in our trenches. And we must persevere. Like we, um, the, the greatest attribute that our children must learn and we must carry through in this struggle is perseverance, right? And just being more stubborn than the activists that are trying to, uh, denigrate our children and their education, confuse them and turn them into um, guinea pigs, you know, for their social experiment. So hold on to your children, embrace mm. them, protect them, and and um, and and man, just be proud of who you are and what you stand for. Like, do not ever have any shame for asking them to make their bed because that teaches them detail, right? And um, get to bed on time because it gives them brain health. You know, all of these are the components to mm-hmm. living our best lives, and and that's what we want for our kids. Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, it's ironic in a way that the distance learning experiment which was a disaster is what uh, sparked so much renewed interest in school board meetings in yeah. curriculum discussions i mean it's it's made how many how many hundreds or thousands of new school board candidates have oh, happened yeah. around the country because yeah. of that and that's what you're speaking to is you know if you're waiting for someone else to fix this it, right. it's the, the person you're waiting for is you 
yeah i mean if you ever um want to you know scream at the school board remember they are individual human beings that just made a decision to get on the ballot right that's all that separates them from you and and you can do it you can stand there and speak for two minutes you can send your email send your letter um, do whatever you can to voice your your values in our society today and, and and do it with moral courage and know that you're not alone you know we have a network of parents across the country and I, I thank you I really thank you for you know um, reading the op-ed and then and then having me on to also speak because my son is now in college and I call myself a survivor of public schools now <laughs> <laughs> we survived, but I, yeah. I'm not. I'm, I haven't given up the fight because uh, we we need school choice absolutely, but we need our public schools to be the best that they can be for those kids that go to the public school systems. And St. Louis is is a, a battleground, as you know very well. Like it, it is um, really important. They're going after advanced academics in school districts across the country, and yeah. Missouri is not exempt at all. Yeah, many, many places. Uh, well, as long as you're in the fight, I have a, a good feeling about that fight. And uh, her oh. Twitter handle is at Azra Nomani, at Azra Nomani. Uh, you can read the, the uh, op-ed. You can uh, follow her activities and her comments. And I hope you'll come back again. It's always good to oh, have you. Oh, absolutely. I'll spell it for everyone, too. It's A-S as in Sam, R-A, and then N as in Nancy, O, M as in Mary, A-N-I. I want you all to... Um, Go there, read the op-ed, and, and do your do your um, do your share in your in your community and in your school. Be that room parent and uh, and and stand up for your kids. There you go. Osra, good to talk to you. We'll do it Thank again soon. So Thank much, you so much, Jack. Okay, take care. Bye bye. Asking one of those big, you know, deep questions. What is school for? What's the? I mean, yeah, reading, writing, arithmetic, but I mean, like, what's the what's the central? If you had to make a slogan, right? What is school for? And is there something we can broadly agree on? Because I think that's the problem right now. I mean, we don't have broad consensus among our, at least among our, our political class as to what school is for. I, I actually think if you took all the politicians, activists, people with no skin in the game, if it was just a room full of moms and dads, I don't think this is hard. I think they could hammer it out. I mean, do you remember when you went to school? Do you remember a teacher that helped you through something or made you interested in a subject you'd never been good at or interested in before? Do you remember discovering good books or, or the constellations or whatever it might be? Do you remember discovering a talent? I didn't know I could write. Or I... Didn't know I was good at the sport. That's what we want. That's what people who love their children want, no matter how they vote or what their other issues are. That's what we want. And somehow we've let strangers into the control room, right? And they've imposed the things they want. And they've made it about what they want. We used to have that uh, term, stranger danger. 
that was to get kids to not accept a ride from a stranger or talk to a stranger or get abducted. I think the stranger danger today is there are strangers in your school influencing the curriculum, insinuating ideas and ideologies that are not about education. And and we have teachers and we, we I mean we have this on video. Teachers saying to their students, this is just between you and us. Don't bring this paper home. Don't tell your parents about this assignment or this discussion. When I was in school, the parents were the partners. The school reinforced the parents. The parents reinforced the school. If I was in trouble at school, I was in trouble at home, and vice versa. 210-599-5555. There's a story uh, tonight. This is from uh, DailyCaller.com. California Teachers Union conducted research on parent groups that wanted to reopen schools. So during the fight over whether to open or remain on distance learning, California Teachers Association was uh, reaching out uh, and trying to get names, identities, of people that were raising um, issues with the continued distance learning that wanted the schools to reopen. Now, I'll, I'll set aside for the moment the fact that the reopen the school crowd was right. Everything we've seen, all the data, you know, the numbers are in. They were right. But it was a pitched battle. And it was really a battle with the unions because teachers didn't like distance learning. I don't know one teacher. I know several teachers, and I can't think of one of them who's ever told me that he or she really got a bang out of that, really enjoy. <laughs> they didn't enjoy it. Some of them hated it or hated what it was doing to the kids. Most kids did not like it. Most parents did not like it. And, again, the data are in. But the teachers' unions were fighting this fight. Now it turns out they were going after the parents. Now, that's designed to keep you quiet. That's designed to make you think, you know what, I don't want to mess with these people. Or My kid is in these schools. I don't want to create any trouble. I don't want to attract. I don't want to get her uh, to where a teacher will have it in for her or whatever. The whole purpose of these kinds of tactics is to discourage people like you and me and Azra and Omani from taking an interest or getting involved. But we have to just do the opposite. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. We were also talking earlier. If you weren't with us uh, earlier, there's a city in the Netherlands that has uh, become the latest to ban all public ad- advertisements for meat. Kind of like we said, you can't have tobacco billboards and tobacco television ads and stuff like that. They've done it with meat discouraging citizens from using meat products. They say, we just want to discourage it. We're not trying to dictate to people. But it's part of this, what they're calling the the great global food transformation. It's part of this whole thing that is demonizing not only meat, but producers, farmers. Farms are like, Factories with dirty smokestacks. Farms are like strip mines. Farms are filthy. They're killing the planet. 
I'm so old, I remember when we worried that we couldn't grow enough food for the global population. What if, we, what if there's too many people and not enough land? What if we can't do it? And there were people who predicted we would not do it. They, again, they were wrong. But we've gone from striving to get the most out of agriculture, to get the food to people who need it, which is still the challenge, Now we're driving farmers out of farming, away from farming, demonizing it. And you got to ask yourself, it's a basic question. When you sit down to dinner tonight or you put food on your table, who does that? Who makes that possible? Do activists make that possible? Does the World Economic Forum or Davos or Bretton Woods institutions, do they make it possible? Or do farmers make it possible? And truckers? It probably hasn't escaped your notice that all of the people all along the way who lead up to and whose end product is the sandwich you had for lunch or the pork chop you're going to have for dinner tonight, all the people that do that, and make that possible, are all the people the activist class are waging war on. They're the problem. They're the enemy. We need fewer of them and more of us. What are you going to eat in a world where there's fewer of them and more of us? And again, what happened to worrying about, is there enough food? Does everybody get some? These people don't even care about that. Let them eat crickets. It's literally the answer. Sounds like I'm making that up. Let him go. Let him. He's, look, everybody's entitled to be an idiot. And here I am. Your idiot has arrived. 638 on KTSA. Jack Riccardi, late afternoon show. We're here Monday through Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. Live and always on demand on the Jack Riccardi page at KTSA.com. If this is not the ideal radio listening time, you can hear our show when you want it, where you want it, over whatever device you want it so uh i don't know if you remember these these ran for years and years it was it was a beef industry uh advertisement it wasn't for a brand or a supermarket or a sale it was to build a greater awareness of and keep in people's mind the idea of consuming beef remember these words out the taste you love is also a good source of things you need, like iron, zinc, protein, and some B vitamins. Beef, it's what's for dinner tonight. And Don and I were talking off the air about how these got started and why they might have gotten started. And, and Don, I think we, we agreed there were a number of things going on, right? Like there had been a lot of negative health news about overconsumption of beef, it was perceived, you know, when I was when I was a kid, like steak 
was a rare treat, you know. You, you know, what do you think? You're, what do you think were the Rockefellers? You know, and then there was also, you know, people were were maybe eating uh, a lot more chicken, stuff like that. Also, so they the were just trying inhumane to, ways. I think cattle was being right. Treated. Yeah, they were. They had started to show news magazines, television news magazines, started to show exposés on the slaughterhouses and what have you. Um, so they they said we're not going to take this lying down. And we're going to be on the table. We want to be on the, the American dinner table. And so they ran these great ads, this ad campaign that went on for years, radio, television, print, beef, it's what's for dinner. And then if, if I remember correctly, and I don't know if it was in direct response to this or not, but remember the, the pork producers, they came out with a series of uh, advertising messages. And their slogan, if, you, if you're too young to remember this, you're going to laugh, their slogan was pork, the other white meat. Which now, can you imagine now, you're in a pitch meeting at some ad agency? <laughs> let's, let's call it the other white meat. What? Oh, my God, no. Couldn't get away with it now. But that worked for them. So I think um, we're in a moment where if you produce something, uh if you produce value, if you, you know, to use the word merit that Azra Namani was using. So if you're in a business, you make something you're proud of, you grow something you're proud of, you provide something you're proud of, somebody's going to come after you. Not as a competitor, hey, I can do it better, I can do it cheaper. Somebody's going to come after you and say, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be selling that. People don't need that. People oughtn't have that. And that's the new challenge, right? The old challenge was I got to beat the guy down the street or I got to beat the guy across the street. The new challenge is I got to defend that I'm even doing this or that people should have this. It's insane. You know, it really is, but it's it's the times we live in. I forget was it yesterday Don that we were talking about um the Vogue uh, cover story was that yesterday or the day before? I don't even remember it anymore. I think it was yesterday, Jack, I believe it was. Yeah. So today, there's this, that was Jennifer Lawrence, the uh, actress on the Vogue cover, who said uh, she can't F with people that aren't political. <laughs> so she's not going to be effing with you if you're not political. Sorry, somebody had to tell you. Now we find out, I just read this today, I, I didn't see it yet, but the cover of GQ magazine has AOC. Because, of course, Gentleman's Quarterly, Makes all the sense in the world. Not. So the uh, the October GQ is an interview with AOC. And she's got a lot of important things to tell you, men who read GQ. You need to get into the fight for abortion rights. Um, the article says um, she is um, really more of an introvert than people realize. She avoids appearing in places where she will attract attention. What? What? Huh? She was asked about her future ambitions to run for president. Does anybody doubt? I mean, there's zero chance she's not running for president. And she said, this interview was done in the summer. She said, realistically, I can't even tell you whether I'm going to be alive in September. Oh, okay. But it's a it's a cluster bleep of 
her play acting and over dramatics and you know she has tears rolling down her cheek about January 6th and all this other stuff she's she um she's a scary messenger i mean she's the messenger for a set of ideas that are very old you know this is this is socialism this is i would say socialism with a with a um in a fascism package because you're not going to be choosing anything or opting for anything with uh, an AOC world. But what scares me about her is that most socialists are kind of like Bernie Sanders. And I've always thought that the the greatest danger or um, vulnerability to socialism we as a free people would ever have would be when they got the packaging right. The packaging was never right. But you've got, like, Gavin Newsom, you've got AOC, and, and again, don't take this as an insult, but for low-information voters, these appear to be aspirational people. They're, well, they're cool. They, they say the right things. They go to the right parties. They're photographed with the right people. They're on the magazine covers. They look like they belong on magazine covers. You know, they're not putting Bernie on, on any magazine covers. That's that's when the danger is the greatest. The, the, the ideas are old and broken and they're failures, and it's usually pretty easy to show that to people. Even when people initially like a socialist idea, it's usually not hard to point out to them the consequences. Well, if we do that, then this, this, and this are going to happen. You wouldn't like that very much. Oh, yeah, you're right. But then when you have somebody that is a very... Um, cosmetically put together messenger, I start to worry. So we'll see what happens. Not to say that we're doomed or all is lost. I don't feel that way at all. But of course she's going to run for president. Of course she is. She has to. I mean, this whole thing, that's, that's the thing about American politics now, right? If you achieve a certain level of... um notoriety that's the only place it can lead to that's the only place it can go when you think about our history we're 250 years old okay we've only had 46 presidents so it's an incredibly rare thing but these days the way the system is set up it it's like a funnel and it just it, it it points in only that direction. We've in the past people have found ways to lead and inspire in all kinds of other areas and walks of life, even in politics, short of being president. Some of our greatest American leaders were not presidents. Maybe ran and didn't get it, maybe never ran. But yeah, if you're somebody like this now, that's the only way to go. That's that's gotta be the last chapter of the book, right? And and if you don't get it, then the election was stolen. 210-599-5555, or, or it was racist, or it was, you know, whatever, whatever the excuse will be when that time comes. We'll have one ready by the time we need one. Are you a WWE fan? Big event coming to San Antonio in January. 95% say no, 5% yes. New JR poll, that, that surprised me a little, yeah. Anyway, new poll qu- uh, question tomorrow at uh, 4. Find it anytime at KTSA.com. You can also find this show, not tonight's show. It'll take a few hours to get there, but past episodes of this show are always available. 
Jack Riccardi page at KTSA.com. We're talking about AOC, and um, I came across this quote that I think describes a lot of what's happening right now, but this was 1970. A man named Walter Ruther, and you have to be over a certain age to remember Walter Ruther, but in his time, he was one of the most famous highest profile, best known, pretty well-regarded labor leader. He was a major, I think, United Auto Workers. This this was a man that consulted with presidents and prime ministers and, um, you know, really in, at the height of the labor movement, he was one of the giant figures in labor. And that meant that Walter Ruther was very connected to the left wing of his time. He was uh, a hero to liberal politicians and liberal voters. And um, toward the end of his life, he began to feel, this was during the period of time like the, the 60s, the riots, the uh, 1968 Chicago Democratic Convention, the, the, all, all of that began to turn Walter Ruther against what he called the ultra-left. He began to regret some of the people he had funded, some of the people he had supported, because he didn't like what they were doing and how they were doing it. Again, this is 1970, he said. The ultra-left extremists, with their slogans and reckless behavior, are sowing the seeds of a unique form of American fascism, what Lenin called infantile fascism. Rather than being for something, he said, they only know what they're against. Rather than being for something, they only know what they're against. Does this sound familiar? He said, when you're in favor of destroying the system, the worst enemy is anyone trying to make the system work and make it responsive to human needs. And I'm reading this book, I was reading this book over the weekend, and it jumped off the page at me, that quote. Because that, I mean, he's been gone a long time. But you that could have been said today. That could describe the ultra-left today. Destroy the system. Refuse to work with people that want to make it work. Fear people who are trying to make it work. You only know what you're against. You define yourself by what you're against. How many people do you see every day or or know of who can only define their political outlook as against Trump or against MAGA or, or, or against Republicans or against... But, I mean, that's not a fully fleshed-out worldview. Okay, that's what you're against. But if, if you had the power, what would you do? What, what are you for? Is, is it just about punishing your enemies? Is it just about eradicating your enemies? Is there, is there nothing you would build? Is there nothing you would improve? The ultra-left extremists, with their slogans and reckless behavior, sow the seeds of a unique form of American fascism. I don't think you can say it any better than that. And it was said it was something they were noticing, people like Walter Ruther, over 50 years ago.
So, but but here's the but here's the here's the good news. I whenever I read history, it it always reminds me that the way we think about our times that I don't know how we're going to get through this. I don't know how we're going to get over this. These are the worst people. This is the worst leader. This is the worst this, the worst that. All through history, people in their times thought those same things. It's never been worse. We'll never get through this. There's no way out of this. It's too late. I mean, I, I do take some comfort in that, that people just like us in other times were struggling with these things, and somehow we did survive them, and we will survive this too. And I'll see you back here to help us do that. We'll all do it together on the radio tomorrow at 4 or anytime on the Jack Riccardi page at KTSA.com.